you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. There was this man, we'll just call him Isaac, who had twin boys. These twins were as different as night and day. One was an outdoorsman, a hunter, and a hothead. The other would rather stay indoors, was more of a mama's boy, and was pretty manipulative. Isaac clearly favored the older twin over the younger one. For his wife, it was the opposite experience. As Isaac neared death, he wanted to bless his oldest son. After all, oldest boys should receive the firstborn blessing of the family. Isaac asked his son to go out and kill some wild game for him and cook it up the way he liked it, and then he would pronounce a blessing on his life. Isaac's wife overheard the conversation and sprang into action. She was not about to let Isaac bless the oldest twin when it was the younger who was supposed to get it. So she grabbed her favorite son and instructed him to deceive his father by acting like he was actually the oldest son. She would cook some meat just like he liked it, even if it was goat meat, and the younger twin would serve it and get the blessing instead. But there was a problem. The younger twin was a smooth-skinned man, while the older was a very hairy man. What if old, nearly blind Isaac tried to touch his son? No problem, says Mom. We'll play dress-up and cover your exposed skin with some animal hair may even make you a mustache to go with the ensemble. Wouldn't you know it, this foolproof plan, I mean foolish plan, worked to absolute perfection. Sure, Isaac thought the voice sounded like his younger son, and it seemed strange that he caught that wild game so fast, but he gave away the blessing anyway. His wife deceived and manipulated, getting exactly what she thought her son should get. So what happened when the older twin actually caught the wild game, cooked it up, and served it to his father? There were a lot of tears shed, both of anger and grief, as father realized he was deceived, and son learned he was denied a blessing. Understandably, the older twin was now ready to hunt down and kill the younger twin, maybe even wanting to serve his head on a platter to his father. Smartly, the mom said it was time for the younger twin to go on a journey and stay away for a while. How long exactly would it take to forget this life-changing deception? Yes, this true story comes from Genesis 27, and it's a great and terrible example of a dysfunctional family experience. And these were members of God's original family. Can you imagine this sort of thing happening in your family? Unfortunately, many of us have already witnessed some extreme favoritism, deception, manipulation, and even open hostility. This sort of dysfunction is not abnormal in our world today. Actually, it's hard to find really good examples of family interaction in the Bible. More often than not, we read about marriage and family problems. 
That is the reality of sinners living together in the fallen world. So let's dig down deep into the heart of the difficult matter of the dysfunctional family, seeking biblical wisdom and guidance that we can apply to our own family life. Now, I've mentioned on other podcasts that I used to chuckle at the whole concept of dysfunctional families, believing that all families are dysfunctional due to being filled with sinful people. In other words, labeling any family as dysfunctional is just redundant. In some ways, that observation is sound, especially if you use the term dysfunctional in the broadest sense of the word. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, There is no such thing as a perfectly functional marriage or family. Yet at the same time, there are families that go well beyond normal day-to-day sin patterns and become so toxic and destructive that they can barely be recognized as a true loving family. Maybe you grew up in a family like that or recognize it in an extended family or close friendship. It's hard to watch and even more difficult to survive. It's often easy to look back in their own family of origin and point out some pretty dysfunctional behavior. I grew up in a family where my parents divorced each other, remarried each other three years later, then divorced each other again many years later. As much as I love my mom and dad and my siblings too, that marriage created some family dysfunction. But the first struggle with understanding the difficult problem of the dysfunctional family is coming up with defined categories of what constitutes a truly dysfunctional pattern versus just a normal sinful one. Here's one mental health expert's attempt at it. She believes there are four types of dysfunctional families. First, the alcoholic or drug-dependent family system, where one or both parents are addicts. Or the second type, the emotionally or psychologically disturbed family, where one or both parents are emotionally or mentally abusive of each other and the children. Then there's this third one, the physically or sexually abusing family system, which is pretty self-explanatory. And then she names a fourth one, the religiously fundamentalist or rigidly dogmatic family system, which may describe families like mine. After all, we have eight children, homeschool, and force our children to go to church, say their prayers, and read the Bible. All joking aside, there are certainly parents who use religion to control their children or to fearfully isolate from this world. All in all, this is a pretty good attempt at defining different types of dysfunctional families. Well, another theorist helps our understanding by expanding on dysfunctional behaviors by parents that created dysfunctional family situation. Here's some of that description. One or both parents have addictions or compulsions, example, drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, gambling, overworking, overeating. And these addictions or compulsions have strong influences on family members. Or one or both parents use the threat or application of physical violence as the primary means of control. Children may have to witness violence, may be forced to participate in punishing siblings, or may live in fear of explosive outbursts. 
Or then there's where one or both parents exploit the children and treat them as possessions, whose primary purpose is to respond to the physical and or emotional needs of adults. Example, protecting a parent or cheering up one who's depressed. Or one or both parents are unable to provide or threaten to withdraw financial or basic physical care for their children. Similarly, one or both parents fail to provide their children with adequate emotional support. And then finally, one or both parents exert a strong authoritarian control over the children. Often these families rigidly adhere to a particular belief, religious, political, financial, personal. Compliance with role expectations and with rules is expected without any flexibility. Now, if one or more patterns like that exist in a family, how do the children turn out? How do they respond? Well, the children may be either forced to take sides in conflicts between parents. They may experience reality shifting in which what is said contradicts with what is actually happening. For example, a parent may deny something happened that the child actually observed. Or the child may be ignored, discounted, or criticized for their feelings and thoughts. Or the child may have parents that are inappropriately intrusive or overly involved and protective. Or a child in a dysfunctional family may have parents that are inappropriately distant and uninvolved with their children. Or here's another one. This child may have excessive structure and demands placed on his or her time, choice of friends, behavior. Or conversely, receive no guidelines or structure. Or a child may experience rejection or preferential treatment or be restricted from full and direct communication with other family members. Or in worst case dysfunctions, a child may be allowed or encouraged to use drugs or alcohol, be locked out of the house, be slapped, hit, scratched, punched, or kicked. Now hopefully that gives us some general understanding of what goes on from parent to child in a dysfunctional family and the impact it has on children as well. But since every family is unique, any number of combinations can go on in family life that will make everyone pretty miserable in the end. So now let's move on to why. Why do families end up in these dysfunctional places? Obviously, there's a long laundry list of pretty much any problem that you can think of. Someone who is addicted to drugs is going to create problems in his or her family. Chronic depression or anxiety, a deep-seated anger or shame can have a ripple effect to a spouse than onto children. Long-standing marital strife will surely impact the children in a dysfunctional way. But let's move past those basic issues and develop a more robust biblical explanation. So here we go. First, the lack of functional spiritual headship. Even though secular psychologists would probably angrily reject the view of husbands acting as the head of the wife and the family, it is the standard revealed in God's Word. According to Ephesians 5, husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church. Family dysfunction will occur if husband does not live out a Christ-like leadership of the wife and children, if he rejects the biblical position. This could mean going to the one extreme of becoming domineering and controlling, expecting wife and children to act more like slaves and servants. 
Or the husband may be extremely passive in his headship, attempting to push leadership on the wife or letting the children have all the control. Then there's the avoidant husband who is out of the picture totally, either physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It is no surprise that we have more and more dysfunction in our families as more and more men have refused to act as godly heads of their families. Then here's a second reason why we have family dysfunction, the lack of godly submission. One of the hallmarks of a dysfunctional family is the selfish fight for control with very little humility or willingness to submit. As Christians, we are called to submit to one another as we all submit to Christ. Where hearts refuse to be humble and sacrificial, all sorts of heart idols emerge. But Ephesians 5 also teaches that wives are to submit to their husbands as their spiritual heads. This is quite a difficult challenge if a husband is routinely domineering or is passive or absent. Yet with the work of the Spirit, godly submission can still take place. If a wife, on the other hand, works to control her husband, dominate her husband, or more bitterly manipulate her husband, dysfunction will take place. She may feel this is the only way to deal with a husband who is not spiritually leading well, but it is not the answer. Then third, a family dysfunction will occur where there's a lack of a Christ-centered home. Every family system has a center, a hub in the wheel, if you will. Some have a strong patriarch or a matriarch. Others are child-centered, all of them or one particular child. Still other families seem to have a center that moves from person to person in a fight for control. When the center of the family is focused on any member of the family, dysfunction occurs. Again, we have power and control in the hands of one, which is a recipe for disaster. If a husband and wife are not committed to Christ as Lord and Savior, then Christ will not be the center of the family. Even when both husband and wife are Christians, they still may not consciously and consistently seek to glorify Christ in all things. Being Christ-centered only happens when members of the family deny self and die to self. In a sense, any home that is not Christ-centered will end up being dysfunctional, even if it seems happy and peaceful on the surface. Then a final reason why we have dysfunctional families is a lack of unity in parenting. Yes, this can happen in any family. And children have a way of successfully dividing and conquering parents. But a substantial lack of oneness in parenting will end up creating all sorts of dysfunction. Here are some examples. Spouses attempting to get a child on their side against the other spouse. One spouse acting as the good, fun parent, relegating the other to be the bad cop. One parent wanting to spoil and indulge while the other one tries to restrict the kids as much as possible. So this is much more than just having a few differences in parenting philosophy. It is a wholesale opposition to one another as parents. So these four foundational fractures in family life are rooted in a rebellion against a biblical view of marriage and family life. And they will always lead to dysfunction that can only be solved in Christ. 
The clearest way to solve the problem of the dysfunctional family is to address the foundational crack or cracks in the system. That may be for the husband to act more as the spiritual head God has created him to be. Or for the husband and wife to submit to Christ sacrificially and for wife to submit to her own husband. Or for the home to become more Christ-centered, not marriage-centered or child-centered or self-centered. Or for parents to raise children according to God's word. Obviously, that is easier said than done, any of those things. Since our family situations are always complicated by individual problems, challenging personality clashes, and many other variables. But in order to move from dysfunctional to functional, a family must find a way back to biblical truth. So for the rest of this podcast, let me work with some family scenarios to demonstrate the ways to change the dysfunctional family. First, let's talk about the Adams family. Mr. Adams professes to be a Christian but is rarely engaged as a husband and father. He is in and out of work, irresponsible at home, and doesn't do much parenting. Mrs. Adams is a strong Christian, making sure she and her three sons are in church every time the door is open. She is the responsible one, has kept the same job for 20 years, and brings in the primary income. The younger two sons are fairly passive and irresponsible. The oldest son often acts as the head of the family. Mrs. Adams is closest to her oldest son, who acts as her emotional spouse, listening to her complaints and giving her a lot of attention. But he can't wait to graduate and get out of the house. So let's talk about the point of biblical change. The most obvious one is Mr. Adams. If he begins to take more responsibility, holds down a job and spends more time and gives attention to his wife and children, that would affect the family. But change could also begin with Mrs. Adams. Instead of just being cool and withdrawn toward Mr. Adams, she could pursue a relationship with him. She could start sharing more of her heart and mind with him rather than with her eldest son. She could act as a better helpmate, confronting him about his work ethic and irresponsibility. Would it be out of the question for her to quit her job in order to put the responsibility squarely on Mr. Adams to step up to the plate? Well, we'll get back to that question in a moment. Could the point of change also begin with the oldest son? What if he stopped being his mom's confidant, telling her that she needed to find her intimacy with her husband? Now, yes, that would be a hard conversation and behavior change on the son's part. And how would Mrs. Adams react to that confrontation? But what happens when the oldest son moves out of the house? Will he continue to be the caretaker of his mother? Now back to Mr. and Mrs. Adams. What happens if Mr. Adams was convicted and actually decided to act as the spiritual leader of the home? Would Mrs. Adams just naturally welcome this wonderful change? Or would she have a hard time letting go of leadership? After all, she's been running the show for 16 years. On the other hand, what happens if Mrs. Adams pulls back from leadership, even to the point of refusing to be the financial provider of the family? Does that automatically mean he will take more responsibility? 
Most likely not. And what if Mr. and Mrs. Adams actually get closer together and their marriage improves? Will the oldest son be okay with his role changing, not being so close to mom anymore? So while we must believe that people can change with the work of the Spirit when they commit to Christ and his ways, that doesn't mean the whole family system automatically changes. Unfortunately, we are all tempted to keep the status quo in some way, finding comfort in the long-term system, even if it's miserable. But to be clear, changing the dysfunctional family does start with one person. Even if it takes a long time to find real change in the system, family members must resist the temptation to simply revert back to what is easiest and most well-known. Now let's talk about the Baker family. Mr. and Mrs. Baker profess to be Christians and are regular churchgoers. They have two children, a son and a daughter. In the early years of their marriage, they both enjoyed partying and drinking socially. As children came along, Mrs. Baker sobered up and stopped drinking completely. But Mr. Baker continued his drinking ways, even using recreational drugs once in a while. So now married 20 years, Mrs. Baker acts as the adult in the home, and Mr. Baker is the child. He is the fun parent and she is the tough one. The oldest son is an overachiever in school, but he also likes to drink and do drugs. The younger daughter has always been the responsible one, but now she is doing more attention-seeking behavior like self-harm and developing an eating disorder. So where can change occur in this family? Let's start with the children this time. What if the daughter decided to talk to her youth pastor about her problems? While she needs to take responsibility for her own behavior, how does her relationship with her parents factor in? You may find out that she only gets attention from her mother when she is bad. Plus, she is actually scared to be good and moral in the future, getting stuck with a husband that she has to mother instead of being a wife. How could Mrs. Baker change the family system? No, she doesn't need to start drinking again in order to balance things out. But she does need to deal with how she is acting as a lecturing mother to her husband all the time, rather than a true biblical helpmate. In other words, Mrs. Baker needs to learn how to submit and respect instead of morally lord herself over Mr. Baker. The big question is, why does Mr. Baker continue to drink and do drugs when he is a Christian and a husband and a father? What will move him to live up to his calling to be a spiritual head? Doesn't he recognize the damage he is doing to his kids and to his wife? Yes, he needs to be convicted by the Spirit and the Word. He could also use other men in his life to challenge his lifestyle. Ultimately, he must take responsibility before God or the family dysfunction will continue. Now let's look at a couple other families. The Kronk family. Mr. Kronk is a very strong type A personality. He is pretty domineering over his wife and children. He has been verbally and even physically abusive with his wife at times. Mrs. Kronk is emotionally distant from her husband, becoming even more so in the last few years of marriage. She is very passive and reserved, 
She has no friends and rarely even comes to church. The Cronks have five children. The oldest son is lazy and irresponsible. The second son is just a joker. The third daughter is quiet and often anxious. The youngest two children are holy terrors around the house. Mrs. Cronk is a stay-at-home mom who is totally devoted to her kids. Well, let's start with Mrs. Cronk then. We can understand why she has become more distant emotionally from her husband. She has been abused by her husband. She is naturally more quiet and to herself, which doesn't go over well with type A Mr. Cronk. So what if Mrs. Cronk learns to be more assertive, confronting her husband biblically about his bad behavior? At the same time, what if she becomes more attentive to him? Would this change the dynamic between the two? Or would Mr. Cronk become harsher and even more domineering? Mr. Cronk is certainly responsible to repent of and change his abusive behavior. He alone can end the abuse cycle in many ways and bring function back to his home. Yet, unfortunately, he blames his wife for being more focused on the kids instead of him. Well, what about the children who grow up in this home? Maybe the only point of change for them will be to get out on their own. The oldest three think their parents should have divorced a long time ago. Yet, when they come to faith in Christ, they need to each be counseled to focus on their personal responsibility. It is just so easy to respond to the marital strife that is going on around them all the time. As hard as it is to break free, they must get their eyes on Jesus and off of their parents. Then there's the Daniels family. Mr. and Mrs. Daniels have been married for 20 years and have three children. They seem to have a very strong marriage, claiming the secret is that they go out on a date night once a week. Their three children are very spoiled. They attend the most expensive schools, each have their own fancy car, and have always had the best of everything. On the outside, the kids are moral and upright, always at church, and very respectful to other adults. But they are actually pretty rebellious. One is a drug dealer at school, one is sleeping around, and the other is also involved in a lot of risky behavior. When asked about the kids, Mr. and Mrs. Daniels talk glowingly about their school and athletic achievements. They look forward to their college choices with huge scholarships. But the reality is that these parents spend almost each and every week bailing one child or another out of trouble. They are fully invested in rescuing them and covering for them. All of their emotional attentiveness goes into their children. So in this final example of family dysfunction, the marriage isn't the problem, right? But what if the seeming closeness and intimacy is just as much of a sham as the moral life of the children? The truth is that Mr. and Mrs. Daniels have always poured out their love and affection on their kids much more than on one another. That has to change. More importantly, they need to learn that spoiling their children is not the same as loving them. This couple is avoiding intimacy with each other in the process. The question is why? And the realization is that date night is not always real intimacy. Is there hope for change for the Daniels children? Yes. We believe that the power of Christ can change their hearts too. 
yet they certainly have been handicapped by parents who are allowing them to be self-willed and self-serving. Families like the Daniels can easily pass down their dysfunction generation to generation, even professing Christian families, if a child doesn't break with this pattern. So many examples can be given for how our families get stuck in sinful, dysfunctional patterns. Remember, we also have plenty of stories in Scripture that demonstrate shocking behavior in families as well. The sin in our own hearts easily tempts others to sin, creating sin after sin in our relationships. Yet as Christians, we are not just destined to all have dysfunctional families, even though family life is difficult. Every Christian in the family, from adults to children, are personally responsible for their own behaviors, their own attitudes, their own choices before God. Change begins in one person in order for the system to change. But it's also helpful to be aware of how our own family dynamics operate, both in our family of origin as well as our present family. Wisely thinking through how the roles in the family affect relationships when one or both spouses are not fulfilling biblical roles and responsibilities is where to start. If you are a child or teen in a dysfunctional family, it would be wise to seek biblical counseling for how to handle what you are observing. It will be tempting to carry out unbiblical roles in your marriage and family unless you learn of the biblical pattern. So as we end Season 5 here on Biblical Counseling Today, we have traversed through some very difficult problems. The challenge with a podcast format is that it may sound like there are simple solutions for everything. While I hope you have heard much biblical and practical truth that can be applied, nothing is ever that easy in life. We have complicated problems because of the complex of sin, suffering, the effects of this world, and the work of Satan to deceive. But the good news of the gospel is that we have grace, mercy, and hope in Christ for all things and in all things in this life. There is salvation and sanctification for us in the midst of all our struggles because our Father is sovereign, powerful, holy, and loving. Join me for season six as we continue to apply the truth of God's word to all of life. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.